Hello, and welcome to the Council's Table podcast. I'm your host, Spencer O'Neill, and today uh, we're not going to have any guests. We're going to do something a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Uh, Today, I would like to spend some time discussing sort of the anatomy and, well, not anatomy, but the psychology of a guilty plea. You know, one of the things about being a defense attorney is that it's many times in the best interest of your client to enter a plea and to take a deal. A lot of what our job is, is going out and negotiating. In fact, it's a majority of our job. Uh, in the criminal justice system, I think believe it's 98 or 99% of cases are resolved in some sort of a plea at the time of the resolution. Meaning that, you know, the other very small amount of cases that resolve end up resolving with a trial. And trials are what we spend most of our time talking about. And as an attorney, it's it's what, honestly, we get most excited about. Anybody that tells you that they became a defense attorney to go out and plea people to a case, uh, well, I don't really know what to say about that. <clears throat> I would just say that's not the reason that I got into it. Uh, you know, I became a defense attorney because I wanted to try cases. I wanted to be a trial attorney. I wanted to go into a courtroom and fight for my clients. And I wanted to go and, you know, express their viewpoints and and fight for their liberty. Liberty that, you know, was taken from them or is about to be taken from them if they're found to be guilty at that trial. Today I decided that I wanted to speak on guilty pleas because there was a very specific circumstance that occurred. Um, I was set to have a trial that started today. And the trial ended up not happening. Now, here, sitting in retrospect, what I would say is that I believe that my client taking the plea saved a a very large portion of his life. And that once the plea was done, there was an extreme feeling of relief. And it wasn't relief because I didn't have to go and do a job. In fact... You know, going to trial is part of the job that I like the most, so doing the job is not the issue. Um, the reason that there was relief is because, you know, I've been representing this person for about 12 months now. And over 12 months, you get to know people. Um, you know, people don't do this job because they don't care about people. In fact, they do this job generally because they care about people greatly. And that was how I felt. I felt as though I cared about this person greatly. And the fact that he finally came to the realization that this was his best option um, probably saved him 10 to 15 years in prison. Now, to tell you up front, um, he did receive a prison sentence. He received a prison sentence of five and a half years. And... That sounds terrible. It sounds terrible to think that someone would be going to prison for five and a half years and you would feel relieved about it. However, when, and I'll lay the circumstances out, I won't name the person, um, but I will lay some of the circumstances out. But when you hear the circumstances 
I believe that you'll probably come to an agreement with me that this was in his best option. His best option is his best way to go forward. And um, I'm hoping that for some of you that think that attorneys just want people to plead for whatever personal reasons that they want them to plead, you'll, you'll hear this circumstance and the story and come to the realization that you know, sometimes entering the plea when someone tells you to do so, if they're if you're being advised by an attorney, you know, they're not doing this because they're lazy or they don't want to do it. They're they're doing it because, you know, they genuinely believe it's in your best interest, as it was in this case. So to lay some backstory. Um <clears throat> so my client was arrested last summer of two thousand twenty two. And he was arrested for allegedly selling fentanyl and selling what they call is a, a cathinone. Uh, you know, it's the technical name for the, the chemical is dimethylpentylone. Uh, this one was, but uh, it's a cathinone, which is sort of similar to like an MDMA or a molly. Some of you may know those words. Um, and... You know, when the case first came out, he was offered, uh, I believe, 44 months to resolve his case. And that was offered because of the nature of the chemicals that were allowed to be sold um, and something called a score sheet and his criminal history. Now, a score sheet, for those that don't know, um, in the state of Florida at least, when you are alleged to have committed a crime and the state of Florida is prosecuting you, they do at least in felony court, they do what's called a score sheet, and they take your prior criminal history, they take the charges that you're facing currently, they take if it's a violation of probation, or if you've you know disappeared from probation and done what they call absconding, um, they look to see if there's victim, and if there's a victim, if there's injury, and if there's injury, what kind of injury, and they would put a certain number of points to what type of injury it is, and you know, they add all these things up and they get a score, essentially. And then they take that score and they minus 28 and then they times it by 0.75 for whatever reason. And they come up with a number. And if the number is over 12, then that means that you score mandatory prison. Because you go to prison when you are sentenced to anything more than a year. If you are sentenced to anything more than a year in jail, then you would go to a prison sentence and you would be sent to the Department of Corrections. So if you score above 12 after that uh, math equation is done, where you minus 20, you add all the points up, minus 28 and times it by 0.75, then you each one of those points counts for a month. And if you're over 12, then you're over 12 months. Even if it's 12.5, that's 12 and a half months. And you would be have a minimum sentence, so it sets a floor at that 12 and a half, hypothetically, if that was what your score was. In his circumstance, his score was was greater than that. Uh, it was close to what his original offer was, and he elected not to take his original plea deal. Um, you know, the, the side of the story that I got from him was that he didn't do it, and that he doesn't sell fentanyl, and that, you know, this was this was obviously a mistake, and he he wanted to you know go forward with his case. <clears throat> now, in his circumstance, he is in a case that is a, a confidential informant case, 
Now, a confidential informant is a person that will go out and uh, work, essentially, is what they call it, for a sheriff's office or a narcotics unit or a police department or you know, whomever it is that they are working for. And they're doing that generally in order to work off a charge or a sentence in which they have accrued, uh, accrued on their own. So in a confidential informant case, you're generally dealing with a person that's got a criminal case that's, uh, that they're facing. Uh, they've got a pressure to try to perform so they can get rid of their own charges. And you know the general way that you look at these cases is you look towards their incentives and then you try to figure out how you can make an argument that they're not trustworthy and that you know, what they're saying isn't true. So in this circumstance, we had um, the confidential informant disclosed. And one of the things to know about whether the confidential informant is disclosed or not is because they're confidential, you don't generally find those, those things out. You don't find out their identities. And you don't find those out unless you demand to know them and you enforce your constitutional rights and your right to discovery. So in this circumstance, we did that. Um, now, one thing that may be interesting for some people to learn is that there is no requirement that the state give a plea offer. They don't have to give anybody a plea offer. There's no requirement that it be done. Um, there's a general practice in doing so because, like I stated earlier, so many cases are resolved with a plea. Uh, it's either 98 or 99 percent. It's extremely high. Um, so, you know, plea offers are done and negotiations are, are a large part of, of the job. However, in this circumstance, when you demand that the confidential informant be disclosed, what happens is generally the state will say, if you demand the confidential informant's information, then they're not going to negotiate with you and your plea offers are revoked. So once you decide to get the information that you need through discovery, um, you essentially have no plea offer. You're choosing to go to trial blindly is sort of the predicament that you're put into. Uh, in this circumstance, my client decided that he wanted to see the discovery against him, that he wanted to know what was being used against him, and we chose to go forward with having the confidential informant disclosed. Now, there's a video, and you know, in the video that we got to see, um, you can see my client you know, allegedly selling this, this person um, some fentanyl and then what he, what he calls Molly. Uh, now there's, there's parts of the video that are debatable. Um, you can't technically see a hand to hand transaction because the video is recorded on a phone. Um, so you kind of, the person, the confidential informant kind of sets it down next to their leg and all you can see is their leg, but you can see some things <clears throat> and, um, you can hear what's being said and there's some very damning statements in the video. Now, what happened after that was that uh, my client wrote a letter to the state attorney, and he did so without my sort of knowledge. He just did so on his own, explaining his situation and, and trying to, to see if he could get his case dismissed on his own. Um, what he stated was that he never sold the confidential informant anything, that if you watch the video, you can't see any money being exchanged, which is debatable, and that... Um, you know, he only gave her drugs. He never uh, sold the confidential informant any drugs. So, the problem 
with that statement, and for those of you that don't know, I hope that you'll learn from this, is that in the state of Florida, if you're looking at a sale of a controlled substance, it's actually not required that there be any transfer of money or any transfer of value at all. Um, they, you can deliver said drug to an, uh, a person, and it's the same as if they were to sell it to them. You know, this was difficult for my client to understand. Uh, there were lots of statements that were made as far as, you know, I didn't get any money. I just gave it to them. Um, it's like two people sharing a beer, which I constantly had to, to show him the statute and show him the delivery and explain to him that, you know, just giving the drug from one person to another is the same as selling it. And it's the same charge. You know, they can call it whatever they want, sale of this, but even if there's no value that it's exchanged, it's the same charge. It's intent. It's possession with intent to sell a sale or delivery of a controlled substance is a quote-unquote sale of a controlled substance. Uh, you know, the, the state attorney essentially had in their hands what amounted to a signed confession to the charges. And my client had essentially talked himself into a position by writing a letter, which I clearly did not approve of and told him about later as far as why it was a problem. And at that point in time, um, the client just became combative. And we dealt with combativeness between ourselves for months at that point. Spencer O'Neill here from the Council's Table Podcast. Just want to take this opportunity to ask you guys to like and subscribe to the video, follow the channel, wherever it is that you get your podcast, and enjoy the last half of this episode. Thank you all very much for your support, and this is Council's Table. So at this point, I've got a combative client who's unwilling to listen to what the statute says in relation to what the allegations against him are, and... All I can do is continue to look at the case to try to figure out if there's a way to make an argument either against one or both of the charges. And, you know, over time, we came up with an argument where we could try to make against one of the counts. Uh, but the other one, you know, we really didn't have much of a much of an argument because that was what he had admitted to providing to the confidential informant. Essentially, in the letter, he he stated um, that he did not sell one of the substances, that he doesn't sell or distribute or have anything to do with one of the substances, but that his friend had come over and he had given the other substance to that person uh, because it was a friendly gesture and that there was no sale. And that essentially is what I stated was the admission. It was the it's the signed confession, essentially, because he signed the document and mailed it to the state attorney from the jail. <clears throat> so, you know, this is an unsolicited statement. It's not something that was asked of from him. Um, and, you know, as stated, there's just, there's not much you can really do about that at that point, except try to figure out if there's something in what he said happened that I can work with. Because here's the other part. When you send a letter to the state attorney, you are essentially telling them what your defense is. One of the main things about defending cases is that the element of surprise is extremely important. 
you don't want to run around and tell the state or the judge or anybody what your defense is if you intend to try a case. You want to keep that tight to the chest. There is no benefit in letting anybody know what it is that you're trying to do, no matter how much you think there is. You know, if you have no intention of trying the case and you want to negotiate the case out, then yeah, you might lay it out for the state and explain to them what their problems are and then try to negotiate from a position of strength as opposed to negotiating from a position of weakness where you don't have an argument to make. However, if you're dead set on going to trial and you are claim, you know, you're saying I did not do this, then there's no benefit to letting them know anything. And you know, you can't talk your way out of a charge generally. It's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people think that they can talk their way out of it. You know, um, some, some of our clients are manipulative people, sociopaths even, and they believe that they can talk their way out of it because that's what they do with their problems. They try to talk over they're out of them or around them or away from them, or they'll use whataboutisms where they'll say, well, what about this person or what about this or what about this and try to change the subject and, and deflect, right? <clears throat> well, in this circumstance, his attempt at deflection backfired tremendously. And, you know, the state had already decided they weren't going to negotiate and we were heading towards a trial. So now, um, now that it's over, I can tell you that we've gone up until the, to the day of trial. And what occurred was actually quite tremendous. So I started this off by telling you that I was going to tell you about the psychology of a, of a guilty plea and how I was relieved that one had occurred. And even though we didn't go to a trial, I feel as though the plea that was taken was in the best interest of my client. And the fact that it was taken may have saved, in fact, I'm certain that it saved, you know, 10 to 15 years, if not more of this man's life. So, um, last week, this person was rearrested. Uh, first off, they had bonded out of jail about five months ago. So this person was out in the community and they were rearrested, uh, last week, the week before the trial, uh, for allegedly selling another controlled substance to another confidential informant, which, you know, what do you do? You just move on to the trial that you have in front of you and you deal with the next problem as it comes. However, um, something did tremendous occur, and that is that this person had essentially three days from Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You know, they went in, sorry, they went in Thursday and came out on a Monday to, to court and had three days to kind of detox off them, off the drugs that they were using. And while they were still not exactly clear headed, because they were coming off of, you know, the drugs that they were heavily using, um, they were significantly more clear-headed than when they had gone into jail three days ago. Uh, if this person, I truly believe that if this person had not been arrested, there would not have been a plea, there would have been no making any sense to the person, and it would have resulted in a 20-year prison sentence, is what I believe what would have happened. <clears throat> Instead, what occurred is that... I had an opportunity to speak to this person with a somewhat clear head. And we got to discuss the ins and outs of what the case was with a more clear head than I had gotten to speak to him in about approximately five months. And at the end of it, 
essentially, you know, what I told the person was that I cared about them and that I didn't want the next time that the two of us saw each other that we were going to be old men. I didn't want us to be old men the next time we saw each other. There was a conversation that was had where the the statement was made by the person that uh, they didn't want to to take the the plea because they were afraid of a death in their family, and also they didn't want to take the plea because they felt like their life would be over. And we had to have a discussion on why. First off going to trial on a case where you've essentially signed a confession is not a good option and you're certainly looking at a larger sentence after a trial and that there's nothing about your current circumstance that you can do to prevent the death of the person that you love in your family and furthermore that when you're in your mid-40s and you're looking at a four and a half five-year prison sentence that you're not your life isn't over that in fact what you're doing is you're you're de- you're deciding to save life you're deciding to save your life you're deciding to save your 50s and your early 60s and the amount of work life that you have left and your ability to create equity and the hope that when you are done with your sentence you can return to your livelihood of which this person does have uh, this person has a trade and they have a criminal history from when they were younger and they were able to go into that trade. So there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't be able to go back into that trade in the future. That the choice between going to trial and not going to trial was essentially the choice between preserving your life and throwing away what's left of it, at least the parts that mattered. If this person had decided to go to trial and the things had gone the way that they were clearly going to go, then they were looking at a sentence where they would have been getting out around the time that they were going to retire and have nothing, have no body to go out and use to to do the laborious job that they, they do on a daily basis for their trade and have no time left to collect that equity and try not to be completely indigent completely dependent on a social security system of which they would not get very much because they had not paid into it if they got anything i'm not even sure so after this conversation um i I was able to speak to the state attorney and to get an offer that was slightly lower than than what they had expressed earlier that day and we were able to resolve the case with a plea of no contest not only were we able to resolve the case of the plea of no contest, but we were able to resolve the new arrest for the similar charge, for the similar action, uh, as well as the new case. And those two cases were resolved with what's called a concurrent sentence, meaning that you serve both sentences at the same time. And we were able to get um, a slightly lower amount of prison than what had been offered earlier that day, as well as we were able to get all of his prior jail credit awarded towards his sentence, both in the old case, which he had a right to it there, as well as the new case of which he only had a right to three or four days at that point. 
So at the end of it, um, you know, I'm not sure how he felt, but I can tell you that as his attorney, I felt extremely relieved and I felt as though I had saved this man 10 years, if not plus in prison, that I had saved him his ability to possibly have a future and that my speaking to him on a level that was personal, on a level that had to do with love, on a level that had to deal with reality, uh, was able to, to break through and save this man a terrible, terrible fate that he was inflicting honestly upon himself. Let's not forget that in the criminal justice system, uh, as a defense attorney, you're constantly dealing with people that not always, but a lot of the times bring trouble upon themselves. And when you are a person that constantly brings trouble upon yourself, you have a tendency to look towards others. Like I stated earlier about what aboutism and how this isn't fair and what happened to this person and, you know, just the, the multitude of excuses that people make up in their heads for why things are happening to them. In this circumstance, I was able to break through and I felt extremely relieved. I got relieved to the point to when I made it back to my office, I, I sat at my desk and I took a deep breath and I started to sob. And just thinking about it now, I kind of, you know, I kind of feel like I want to sob. Um, but the reason that I'm putting this episode out and the reason that I wanted to put this, this perspective out is because I felt it was important for maybe some of those that are in a similar position to me to know that, you know, there are others that are doing the same as you are and that they're trying to do it from a place of love. And even if it's not always seen or if it's not appreciated, it's work that needs to be done. Uh, also hoping that for some of those that are out there that either have gone through or maybe going through in the future a situation where they could be entering a plea to something. You know, don't look at your attorney necessarily as this person that's just trying to shove you down the system. I would say that the most people that get into this line of work, specifically criminal defense work, are essentially social workers. You know, I spend a lot of time doing a lot of things that have nothing to do with really what my job is, whether that's collecting items for clients that are about to be thrown away by their ex-girlfriends or ex-boyfriends and hiding them in a closet or you know, collecting materials for sex offenders that are about to live in a, a, a homeless situation so they have a tent or a pillow. Um, you know, you, you'd be surprised to see the number of things and the types of things that uh, criminal defense attorneys do for people that are destitute and desperate. And sometimes the most important thing that we can do is we can tell them the truth. And for this person, I felt like I told them the truth and the result was the best result that could have happened. And for that, I was extremely proud. This was Council's Table Podcast. is Spencer O'Neill, your host of the Council's Table Podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening. I know that we didn't have any guests this week, and it was just me talking. 
I tried to keep it to a reasonable level. I hope that the content was enjoyable. I do plan to do some more uh, episodes like this in the future where it's just me expanding on a topic. It may not be a, a personal subject like it was today, although I expect in the future you will hear more personal subjects like this. It may be um, an issue. I expect to, to do an episode in the future concerning the current status of medicinal cannabis in the state of Florida and the do's and don'ts and the mistakes that people make when looking at you know, what they can and cannot do with their medicinal cards, so look out for that episode. Um, beyond that, I want to say once again, please like and subscribe to the channel. Uh, please follow the, the podcast wherever it is that you get this podcast. And thank you for listening. This was the Council Stable Podcast.